I may be in trouble for what I'm going to do now, but I, I believe it was somebody's birthday yesterday. That is Beck's birthday. So maybe just put your hands together and let's say congratulations <laughs> to Beck. Beck, you're a day older than last year. <laughs> May God really bless you in this next year and thank you for what you guys are doing for us as a church. Uh, it's an amazing thing to see you minister as God guides and directs. It's an incredible thing. Wonderful relationship. Welcome. It's, a, it's always a thrill and always a pleasure to be here and uh, to be able to, to just fellowship around the Word of God together with you all. So before we do that, let us pray together and then we'll go right into what God has for us this morning. Thank you, Lord, for your love. Thank you for who you are and for what you do in our lives. Thank you. Something's happening here. Thank you, Lord, that we can sort out the sound as well. Uh, thank you, Lord, for how you engage with us in a service like this, that uh, we can trust and believe and know that you want to engage with us deep inside where only you can touch. So, Lord, we simply pray, speak, and transform us from the inside out according to your purposes. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Our theme for this morning is... Slightly unusual, I would say, in that this is not something we often talk about. You won't easily hear sermons on what we are talking about today, and that is our relationship with the Holy Spirit. And I'll own this and make it very personal and talk about my relationship with the Holy Spirit. And out of that, hopefully, you'll be able to identify and glean and apply in ways that would help you further progress your own relationship with the Holy Spirit. I think we don't hear that many sermons about the Holy Spirit for a number of reasons, but one of them, I think, is aligned with who the Holy Spirit Himself is and with His character. The Holy Spirit, almost always in the Bible, is depicted as moving to the background. It's not as if the Holy Spirit is ever in the forefront, it's not as if the Holy Spirit ever steals the limelight. It really is as if the Holy Spirit moves to the background and functions almost as a spotlight on Jesus Christ. Everything the Holy Spirit does in the Bible is to highlight who Jesus is, how we can be Christ-like, and then empowers us to be like Jesus to continue the work that Jesus started. So it's really the Holy Spirit is like a spotlight or a searchlight that finds Jesus and highlights Jesus for us all the time. And as we know, nobody looks into the light of a spotlight. <laughs> it's almost like it's at the back of the room and, and it uh, focuses the attention to what happens on the stage. Jesus is on the stage. I think this is okay. It's just... Is it, is it funny? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to be double wired for sound now. <laughs> that has never happened. This is on. Okay. So let's go into this a little bit. My relationship with the Holy Spirit. Some parts of this you may have heard me talk about before from the stage, uh, from the front. And if it is so, forgive me for doing that. But I want to bring a few things together for you this morning. Standing still with the Holy Spirit and... And what God says about that. 
I always knew about God in my own life. I was aware of God. I grew up in a, in a house where my mother served God fully. She was a really godly woman, a little bit like John Wesley's mother. And even into his 60s, 70s, he still wrote letters back to his mom. He said, Mom, I have this theological idea. Can you maybe just pray into this and, and tell me what you think? <laughs> he had that kind of relationship with his mother. Godly woman. It was John Wesley's mother that led him to God. It was the same in my life. My mother led me to God at the age of 13. She brought me up in the fear of the Lord, but then sat down with me and prayed the Lord's Prayer. And, you know, and that prayer of conversion, if you want to call it that, at the age of 13. And something happened right there. It became personal. It became real. And in that moment, I knew that I was called to go into ministry. It was never anything else. I didn't want to become a fireman, uh, not even a pilot, Engineering, no, it was always ministry. I always knew this. So long story short, I felt this calling, and then I left school, and I started studying to become a minister at the age of 18. In the church tradition we were in at that time, you had to study three years, and then the next three years before you could be ordained as a minister in the church, the Dutch Reformed Church in South Africa at that time. So it was a long journey. About halfway through the journey, I, I studied this at the, at the Faculty of Theology at the University of Pretoria. At that time, had about 40,000 students, not all of them in the Faculty of Theology, of course. <laughs> Only about 100 or, or 200 of them. It was a very conservative church in South Africa at that time. In my third year, halfway through, I was really struggling. I was just, man, academically it was okay. But I was struggling with how dry and how dead this felt. It was all about the mind and, and knowledge and cognitive progress. But man, I missed the heart of it. It felt as if these theological studies were taking the joy out of it all. Dry. Felt as if it had no life. And I knew that a relationship with God had to be about more than this. I mean, I've experienced glimpses of it in my own relationship with God up to that point, even though it was a bit up and down. But I knew, man, there must be more about it. The more I read the Bible, the more I see that the relationship those guys had with God was a little bit deeper and a little bit more steady and constant and powerful than the one that I'm having. And the one that I hear about and, and learn about in faculty, I just don't see it in the professors, with all due respect. I mean, I, I read about these great men of faith and what happened in their lives, and I read about things that happened to and, and even through people of the Bible, and, and I compared it to how dry it was at faculty, and it made no sense. Just did not work. So I started searching for something more, something deeper. I knew it, there had to be something more. I wanted to hear God's voice clearly and and I want to be able to do some of the things the Bible talked about, even if I can just pray for somebody once and they were healed. You know, that's how I felt at that point. Or like having a word of wisdom, I didn't even know exactly what that means, by the way. You need a word of wisdom to understand what a word of wisdom means. <laughs> it's very funny. So I started church hopping. Now, I did that on the sly and in secret, incognito, you know, under disguise, because if you study at the Faculty of Theology in Pretoria, which is the, you know, it's like the, the uh, headquarters 
of the Dutch Reformed Church in South Africa. When you start doing church hopping, my goodness, if they find out, you're in real trouble. It was like that. It's like a little bit like the, you know, the Illuminati or something like that, I think. <laughs> Perhaps not as bad as that, but anyway. So the third church I visited was a charismatic church. I did not at that time know exactly what a charismatic church is or what it means, and I just knew that you know, charismatic means that they, you know, there's a bit of a bigger focus on the things of the Spirit and on the gifts of the Spirit and so on and so on. Didn't have any real understanding of what that meant. And so I, I attended the sermon, and lo and behold, the preach was on the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Now, I've never heard those terms either. I, you know, I've heard about them in the background as noise that you have to ignore when you study at the faculty. And at the end of it, you know, as, as the preacher was going through this message, it just started clicking. You know, when, when puzzle pieces click into position, it was like that for me. There was a bit of a revelation process there. And I, uh, eventually, he invited people to come forward for prayer at the end of it, and I did. I wanted to have more of what he was talking about. And he prayed with me. And nothing changed. <laughs> It's a real disappointment. Terrible. And then a few days later, it happened. It started changing. It happened around this, but about my story, it happened like that. A few days later, I was coming back from class. I've told this story before, but let me tell it again. It's just, oh, there's no other way to tell it. Uh, came back from class on my bicycle. Class was about four kilometers from where I stayed in the residence. And so I was coming back from class, and, and I noticed this girl walking on the sidewalk. And when you are a young student male, you tend to notice things of this nature. <laughs> Especially when, when it's a pretty young lady walking on the sidewalk. And that's exactly what happened. And so being a you know, very holy theological student, I berated myself internally in my head, and I said, man, Rue, look ahead of you. Don't notice. Things like that. Which, by, by the way, I think God made us to appreciate His creation in a good and, and proper way. And nowadays, so I would not berate myself in exactly the same way anymore, but <laughs> anyway. I noticed this girl, and uh, at that moment, I heard God say in my head, go and speak to her. And it was quite clear. But not having had similar experiences before, I didn't know what was happening. And so I thought it was my desire um, to recognize her prettiness that gave me this thought in my head. And of course, being holy, I started pedaling faster to get away from temptation. Now by the... Uh, about 200 meters further down the line, by this time she's way behind, uh, you know, at the back, I've passed her by, and, and uh, I hear the voice again in my head, very clearly, go and speak to her. And man, I berate myself even more severely in my head. The third time this happened, I clicked, this is God. And so I turned around. By this time, I think I was about a kilometer away. Because obviously I started pedaling faster and faster as I <laughs> tried to get away from this temptation. 
So I turned around, cycled up to her, uh, you know, pulled up to the sidewalk, dust was all on her, and, uh, and I didn't know what to say, not, not knowing the things of the Spirit and how it works and being totally green in all of this. I blurted out, uh, I think God said I need to come and speak to you. <laughs> Imagine somebody, somebody comes up to you with a bicycle, brakes, all the dust is on you. I think I need to come and speak to you. God said so. What would you react with? <laughs> it's just, I mean, today, if I think about it, only by the grace of God did she not hit me or uh, run away. Or She immediately started crying, and I, I thought, man, yeah. I've done it, dust on the, shouldn't have done it this way. And, and I was contrite and I said, man, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. She said, no, 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 it's all good, it's all good. I prayed this morning that if, if God, if you are real and if you exist, send somebody to come and speak to me, otherwise I'll commit suicide today. I was just flabbergasted. You see, after what happened that Sunday in church, in that week following, it just started quickening in my spirit and opening up and God's voice became real. And I became a lot more sensitive to what happened there. And that was because of what, what happened at that Sunday service. It was a quickening of my spirit and opening up of my spirit to the things of God in a way that I've not experienced before because of what I now would call the baptism with the Holy Spirit. I'm not too fast on what we call it because the Bible uses different terms for this. It talks about it in different ways from different angles. So I'm not too worried about that. I want you to hear something about this journey. It didn't stop there. Started entering into this relationship with the Holy Spirit, and, and all kinds of supernatural things started happening much more naturally than they ever did before. I mean, it was just amazing. Uh, you know, a fellow student came to me, fellow theology student, and he, and he told me a story about something that happened in his life that I would today describe as demonic. And uh, he said, man, I don't know what to do. I said, man, I think we just need to pray. And so I sat next to him and we prayed, and he was, he was set free. I thought, what? What's happening? That kind of thing, by the power of the Spirit. I didn't know how it worked. I never heard God as clearly and as directly as, as from that moment onwards. Prayed for a person. I mean, this person came up, had a migraine. Um, and I said, well, Let's pray. And in a flash, the migraine was away, like, in, like that. Now, it's not a gift that God works through me that often, but I've, I've experienced it quite a few times up to now in my life. You know, if God directs you to pray, I'll tell you this story very quickly. One day a guy came out about four, five, six years ago. I was running a service and invited people for prayer afterwards. This guy came out, and as I put my hand on his shoulder, God showed me it's in his lower back. There's pain, there's issues there. And as you do, you know, that's a word of knowledge. The Holy Spirit reveals what's happening here. And I said to him, I, I mean, not being a fool anymore, I think, I hope, I just tested and I said, uh, is there something wrong with your lower back? He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, well, let's just pray about it. Now, usually in a situation like that, you pray under the guidance of the Holy Spirit what God wants you to pray. Because every situation is different, every person is different, you just do what God wants. And so I was fully expecting God to give me about 17 sentences to pray, but it only happened that it was one sentence, that it was this. Lord, please heal him. So now I was standing there waiting for the rest, you know, of course. And he was expectantly waiting for it as well. 
I mean, there's not much power in Lord, please heal him. <laughs> you need a much better prayer than that. At least that was his thinking. And to a degree, mine as well. Lord, please heal him. Nothing happens. And eventually I open my eyes and I see he's looking at me. <laughs> and I go, mate, that's all I have. That's it. Didn't see him for three weeks. He came back after three weeks. I thought we lost him. You know, <laughs> it's not going to come back to church. After three weeks, he came back and uh, he came to the front and he said, look, I just want to tell you, I've had pain in my back and been living with this for eight years. I've been for many medical interventions. Nothing really could, could cure or make the difference. You prayed that one sentence the other day, and, and I have not had any bit of pain since then. It's gone. I said, what? I said, mate, you know that it is not the power of the prayer. Because that one sentence was not, was not it. So you know that God has healed you. The glory goes to God. So all kinds of supernatural things happened. It started happening. So I started entering into a relationship with the Holy Spirit, and it really changed my life. And I slowly started to learn more and more what the voice of the Holy Spirit sounded like and how to be more sensitive to the Spirit. And it's really learning to hear God's voice is like learning, like a baby learns how to discern what, what words mean. I mean, babies recognize their parents initially by smell, first and foremost, and then they start to recognize these noises actually have meaning, and then, uh, then they start to recognize different words, and then they start to recognize sentences. So it's a process of learning. It's almost the same with God. I mean, we, we have to learn how to hear God's voice for what it is, and it takes time, as long as we remain open about this and, and retain that open stance toward God. You know, it starts to grow in us. So yes, as my relationship with the Holy Spirit grew, I started to learn more and more about how it all works. And, and maybe after today, I hope that you will understand a little bit better for yourself as well. I think it's a story about spirit infusion. I would prefer that word now after the journey that I've had with God so far in my life. I mean, when I look at the Bible, the Bible uses different terms for this. Talks about it in different ways. Baptism with the Holy Spirit. Clothed with power is another way of referring to this. Uh, filled with the Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came upon. The Holy Spirit fell upon them. It's all kinds of different. But there's a similar underpinning to all of this. And that is to be or to live under control. That's actually wrong, I think, by the way. And that's why I put it in there so that I can say something about it. To live under guidance, uh, direction, etc. of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't control. It's not in His nature with all due respect. He invites, He guides, He coaches, He leads. But He never takes away our choice. And control means the taking away of choice. So that's not what, what the Holy Spirit does. Never forces us. But He invites. He draws us. Helps us, coaches us. So what does the Holy Spirit do? Let's go into this. Most people don't really understand, and this is my experience over many years in ministry. Most people don't understand and have no idea. For most people, it's a bit spooky and a bit weird. So I'll show you what that looks like. It's a bit spooky and a bit weird. Have a look at this video clip with me and see if you can perhaps identify with parts of it. Spirit. 
spirit is spooky or scary or eerie. His ministry frightens them. They think that if they yield to Him, He'll make them do something weird or bizarre. But listen. Listen to me. The Holy Spirit is not spooky or scary. He's not weird or bizarre. People are. People are weird. Not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was sent by Almighty God and His Son Jesus Christ to be a help to us and to be a comforter and counselor to us in this dark world. He'll, he'll move in us. He'll change us. And He'll conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. And He'll convict this dark world of its sin and of its need for a Savior. The Holy Spirit draws men to Jesus Christ. He strengthens us, believers, to help us overcome temptation and to overcome this world. He empowers us to be witnesses to the great and glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. So let the Holy Spirit in. We are His temples. The Holy Spirit is not spooky or scary. He's real, He's for us, and we need Him. Remember, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So allow His ministry in your life. The Holy Spirit will teach you, and He will guide you into all truth concerning all things. So embrace the Holy Spirit, and embrace His ministry. Allow Him to move in your heart. So the soundtrack there, that's, that's the best version of that video clip that I could find. It's powerful stuff, though. I uh, hope you could identify with that a little bit. It's not weird or spooky. Once it starts opening up, and man, it really it's a life-changing thing. If we want to understand what the Holy Spirit does, we first need to understand the problem that has to be solved. There's a problem to be solved here. And it's here in John 14, verse 12. I assure you, most solemnly I tell you, if anyone steadfastly believes in me, he will himself be able to do the things that I do, and he will do even greater things than these, because I go to the Father. It's always been a, a conundrum. It's always been a vexing verse in the Bible, because how on earth is it possible that we can do greater things than Jesus? I've used this example before in church, but let me use it again. And this is how it works. I think it works like the Notre Dame Cathedral. The greater things that this verse talks about is actually the greater work. If you bring it into context, if you look at a, at, at a few other things, it's about greater work. It's about the accumulation of activities and actions that it accomplishes a greater work for God. So it's like this. The Notre Dame story, Notre Dame Cathedral you can see the years in which it was built. The first era of construction was over 77 years long. There's no way the builder that started the process would complete it. So they used a plumb line and a level. 
And in a way, the Holy Spirit functions like that, the plumb line and the level that keeps us on course so that we can continue doing the work of Jesus until its completion, until the cathedral is built. It's the same kind of concept. That's the issue that has to be resolved. So in order to continue building along the lines of what Jesus showed us how to do, and to continue the work that Jesus started, in order to do that, we need a plumb line and a level with all due respect. That's the Holy Spirit, the coach, the guide. He's the only one that's going to be involved in the whole building process. We're going to be involved for part of it. If we build according to our thinking... You know, I don't think that's going to be a good building. If we build according to His guidance, changes the building. That's how God works with these things. It's a much longer-term project, I think, than we sometimes realize. So in order to do this, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. We need the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So, so what is this power? Let's go to that. It, it's about living life with the same power that Jesus had. And if we want to continue building like Jesus started, continue doing life or ministry in the way of Jesus. You cannot do it in your own power. It runs out very quickly. You know? So you need a constant infusion of power to act like Jesus, to continue the ministry of Jesus. And that power is the power of the Holy Spirit. If we want to live like Jesus, we need His power. Same power as Jesus had. If we want to continue building the kingdom like Jesus, that we need his power. If we want to do the greater things that the Bible talks about, we need his power. And so that power is the power of the Holy Spirit, in my opinion. And it's the power that the, the Bible talks about in Acts 1 verse 8. Uh, it's also called dunamis, is the word that's used there. It's not dynamite. It's not an explosion. It's a constant, powerful power. It's constantly there. It's like Duracell batteries rather than a dynamite explosion, if I can put it that way. You know, Very different. Jesus himself had to receive this. He received the Holy Spirit in Matthew's. You know, we can go into that theology in another, in another sermon. Huge what's happened there. And then Jesus promises this to us as well. Over and over again, it's very clear. Wait. You'll receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will guide you. He will teach you. He will, he will help you understand the things of God. The real question is, how do we receive this power? I, mean, I think we all understand to a degree that there is this power, this, this coach that wants to help us to be like Jesus, to live like Jesus, to continue the ministry of Jesus. We know that. How do we receive it, though? How do we receive what I, let's say, term for now, the baptism with the Holy Spirit? Once again, let me say, I don't care what terminology you want to use. It's about living a life yielded to the Holy Spirit. That's what this is about. How do I receive this? I believe it's a happening separate from rebirth. And I'll explain that shortly again. That sometimes, but most often not, happens together with rebirth. Sometimes does, sometimes doesn't. It depends. God knows how we are wired and where we are at in our lives. So it's amazing to me always how God meets people where they are at. 
Now, it's not as if there's a blueprint or a formula. Okay, you will receive the Holy Spirit only when an ordained pastor of this denomination lays the hands on you three times on the forehead and then you'll receive it. That's not the formula. <laughs> There's no such formula. It happens differently in every person's life. In my daughter's life, Ruvon sitting here, oh, she was just over three years old when she became quickened to the Holy Spirit. And that, that was just an amazing thing. It was a God thing. I wasn't even involved in it. I walked into a room early in the morning. It happened about six months before that, that um, I entered into a room to wake her up. She was two, two years and eight months old then. And um, you pray over your kids and you, you, know, you journey with them. But at that age, you don't tell them any theological secrets because you don't suspect that they would understand it. <laughs> so I came into a room and she said, Oh, Daddy, Jesus was here. And I said, Yeah, right. <laughs> That is beautiful. And I thought, well, very nice. Somebody must have read her a Bible story or something. She said, no, 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 Daddy, Jesus was here. I said, really? And I started realizing that for her it was a real experience. And I thought, okay, I'll humor her a little bit. And she said, yeah. I said, what did he say? She said, well, it was very simple. He said, um, uh, she didn't use the word simple. I added that in. She said, no, he talked to me about he wants to live in my heart. So I realized, oh, something's happening. I said, so, so what did you do? She said, no, I asked him to come and live in my heart. And now he's here. That's it. The end of story. Six months later, I mean, came in again. This time I, I realized, you know, much quicker that God has visited again. And she said, oh, Daddy, Jesus was here again. I said, what did he tell you this time? She said, he told me about the Holy Spirit. I said, really? I mean, Jesus never even told me that clearly about the Holy Spirit. I was jealous. <laughs> I said, what did he tell you about the Holy Spirit? I was really flabbergasted. I mean, there is no way a child of that age can get it. She said, no. He said, I need to listen to the Holy Spirit. He will help me. End of story again. And I thought, man, that's a summary I've been looking for my whole life. <laughs> you know, it's amazing. Out of the mouths of babes. Shion, the same thing. He, he, not exactly the same, but with Shion, I mean, you would... Every now and then he would come and say, yeah, God talked to me, God talked to me, told me this, told me that. Amazing stuff. And that's the Holy Spirit that works in their lives. And they, they grew up in a house where these things were real and just part of the household. So it's no wonder that they breathed it in and it became part of their lives. It's amazing stuff. So how does this work? I believe that sometimes, but most often it happens with rebirth, together with rebirth, it does not directly have to do with salvation. This is hugely important to understand. Baptism with the Holy Spirit does not take you to heaven. With all due respect. By the way, salvation is not about going to heaven. It's about becoming part of the kingdom of God. And that results in going to heaven. You know? So that's another way of looking at it. It's much more accurate. This thing, it doesn't have to do with salvation first and foremost. It has to do with empowerment for ministry. It's about the power to continue the ministry of Jesus. And that happens when I submit myself under the guidance and control, once again, wrong word, yield, yielded to the Spirit. It's guidance, coaching, etc. But it's always an invitational control. The Holy Spirit is not forceful in that He controls our decisions. Guides our actions. Usually happens with a prayer, but it doesn't always happen that way. 
in my experience. It's an amazing thing, this. So some principles before we get to some illustrations that should open it up a little bit more. It starts with rebirth when we receive the Holy Spirit completely. And this is another thing that I think we often miss theologically. So how much Holy Spirit do you get when you become a child of God? Because the Bible is quite clear about it, Romans 8, 9, that when I become a child of God, the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of me. Because how, many, how much Holy Spirit do I get then? Half a Holy Spirit, so that later on I need to receive the other half by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, because I haven't received the full Holy Spirit at the beginning. Now, if the Holy Spirit is a person, I cannot receive half a Holy Spirit. You see the conundrum here? You, we receive the Holy Spirit fully at the moment of rebirth. I'm fully convinced of this. There's no doubt about it. However, that doesn't mean that I'm fully yielded to the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean that I'm under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And I'll show you an example of that a little bit later. It then leads to a growing realization that the Holy Spirit wants to direct and guide and empower my life and an accompanying realization that it requires a submission or a yielding to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. I know many, many wonderful Christians who are sincere in their faith, but live life out of a cognitive understanding of God and not out of the power and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And it lacks power. It lacks Christ-likeness. And it's not because they are not sincere in their faith. It's just not there. So this is an important thing. Let me show you a few images, and hopefully this would open it up. So this is, I believe, how it works. Think of yourself as body, soul, and spirit. Now, this is theologically a, a very debatable. Biblically, the Bible talks much more about what we call bipartite. Now, you can forget that word after I've said it. That basically means the Bible talks about body and then soul slash spirit a lot more. That's more how the Bible refers to people in most cases. Neil T. Anderson says it like this. He says, man, whether you believe the soul and the spirit are two separate things or whether they are superimposed on one another, doesn't really matter. That wouldn't change it. God understands exactly how this works in the intricate details. For me personally, I like the idea of body, soul, and spirit. I see that in 1 Thessalonians 5.23 very clearly. It talks about body, soul, and spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.23. And then one or two other references. So I see evidence of this. The Bible also uses tripartite as a model. And I believe it conforms to who God is as a triune God. So for me, it's easier to explain how we are put together by God when I look at it as a tripartite model. And this is how I think it works. We all have a body. We all have a soul, and we all have a spirit inside of us. Now, interestingly enough, Ephesians talks about the spirit and how we are spiritually dead until such a time as we become children of God. Now, it doesn't actually, it, it doesn't mean that we don't have spirit life. If you look at that whole passage, it means that we are spiritually dead for God. Not that we have no spirit or spirit life. But our spirit is not alive for God at that point. Until such a time as rebirth happens or I become a child of God, I'm spiritually not alive for God. I'm always spiritually alive to something. It's either God or. There's two Greek words for, words for this. Bios. 
body plus soul giving me biological life, and every animal has it as well. Are we at the soul? We talk about the soul as, having, uh, as containing the will and the emotions and, uh, and the thoughts of people. If you think about animals, they have that as well. They, uh, they have a will. I mean, they, they have desire, emotions. Just think about a dog sitting next to the table wanting what you are eating, that kind of thing. They desire that. They have a will to get it. You know, all kinds of things. It's, it's all there. They can think about it. A, a dog with a good IQ or, or an average dog has an IQ of, they assume, around about 40. Just for, for interest sake. You can forget about that one as well. Take it further. So spirit, bios is biological life. Biology is a word that comes from that word. Zoe is my spirit connected to God in in. Greek understanding this denoted a higher form of life, a spiritual form of life that comes from connection with the gods or with God. And so this is what you see in the Bible as well. My spirit connected to God which gives spiritual life in a way. Helps a little bit with the understanding that the biblical worldview is much more integrated than the Greek worldview. But let's not go into that too much. So really... For the sake of the illustration, let's look at it this way. If my life, oh, it's, it's gone against the white. Okay, that was supposed to be a globe. Something has gone missing there because of the white background. So imagine that is a globe. The glass is my body. That's, that's just a way of looking at it. The filament is my soul. And then what happens is we are connected to the power of God. It's almost like... The Holy Spirit works in our lives because He wants to plug us into, the, into God, an unlimited power source with all due respect. And then the following thing happens. We shine. That's the Holy Spirit or the Spirit that comes alive for God. So that's an easy way to explain it. That's how rebirth works. It's when we become connected to God, you know, something comes alive. And we shine with a different light. If this is my life, just using images for a moment, this is my life. The moment I become a child of God, the Holy Spirit comes into my life, my life shines. But the Holy Spirit can be either passenger or navigator in my life. He wants to be the navigator. He's fully there from that moment of rebirth. But what is his role? Am I yielded to his guidance? Am I yielded to his coaching? Am I listening to where to go? I have the driving seat. I have the steering wheel, not the Holy Spirit, with all due respect. It grieves the Holy Spirit when he gives us good guidance and we decide to go another way and run into a roadblock and crashes the car. So the Holy Spirit is my coach for life. He teaches me, he helps me, he guides me, and the next one I especially like, he empowers me. To do what? To what end? All those things. I mean, you can see that in the Bible, John 14, very clearly. 
to live like Jesus, to continue the ministry of Jesus on earth, to lead a victorious life, to witness. This is the one sign of the Holy Spirit active in somebody's life and their life yielded to the Holy Spirit above all others. Now, first and foremost, it's a growing in love. You cannot, there's a love that starts bubbling up. But then it's this thing about witnessing. People who are yielded to the Holy Spirit will bubble over with a message about Jesus. You cannot stop it. Because the Holy Spirit always wants to shine the spotlight on Jesus. So if the Holy Spirit is active and alive in me and and guides my actions, He's going to guide me to shine the light on Jesus like He does. All the time. So how, still, how does this thing work? I believe the baptism of the Holy Spirit works like this. It's like, imagine for a moment your life is a sailboat. And then, one day you realize, wow, okay, wait a minute, I'm in the docks. I'm not doing what a sailboat is supposed to do. I was created to be on the water. The water is the kingdom of God. I I was created for life there. And in that moment, you realize that, okay, I need, to, I need to accept Jesus as my Savior. That's the way to go to the water, to become part of the kingdom. That, that is the, that, that's the channel into the, the kingdom of God. You give your life to Jesus, and it's as if God then to, takes the sailboat of our lives and he puts it on the water, which is the kingdom of God. And the interesting thing about the kingdom of God is there's wind blowing in the kingdom of God. It always blows. When you look at the Bible, the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit as as the ruach, the wind of God. So it's as if the wind is always blowing over the water. And here I am, a sailboat on the waters of the kingdom of God. And I have the possibility to sail under the power of the wind of God. In all kinds of directions. The problem is, this is what my sailboat looks like. The sails have not been hoisted yet. So, understand this. I'm fully on the water. In other words, I'm fully part of the kingdom of God. Rebirth has happened. But I'm not yet moving. Because the sails haven't been hoisted. And that's what the Holy, uh, baptism with the Holy Spirit really is. It's about hoisting the sails. So that I can catch the wind of the Spirit. And start moving under His power. So that I can do life like Jesus. Continue the ministry of Jesus and all those things we talked about. So this is it. The sails must be hoisted. And then, it doesn't stop there. I mean, hoisting the sails, first and foremost, is important. And then the Bible talks about this in Ephesians 5.18. It says, be continuously filled with the Holy Spirit. It's, not, it's also not as if it's a once and for all thing. I mean, you hoist the sails, but then you have to trim the sails every day in every situation to catch the wind of the Holy Spirit. And at times, you, your sails are not trimmed well, and you only catch a little bit of wind. At other times, and that, that's a challenge, every day yield to the Holy Spirit. There were times in my life where there's so much noise that it drowns out the noise of the Holy Spirit or the voice of the Holy Spirit or I am not sensitive enough, or I don't, don't take time out and become quiet and sit still and, and really focus and, and listen and, and take the guidance from the Holy Spirit. That means my sails have not been trimmed to tackle or, or to, to catch the wind of the Holy Spirit. 
To illustrate this a little bit, I mean, go back to the Bible. Let me prove this point for a moment. Peter. Peter was an interesting guy. After Jesus' resurrection, he receives the Holy Spirit. Yeah, we read about that in John 20. Then he was baptized with the Holy Spirit as one of the 120 in the upper room in Acts 1.5. Then he was filled with the Spirit to preach on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2 verse 4. Now it's almost like, my goodness, Peter, what happened in the first and second instance? Did you miss it? Did you only get half of the Holy Spirit? What, what happened there? No, he needed the continuous filling of the Holy Spirit to act like Jesus, to continue that ministry. He was filled with the Spirit again to speak to the Jewish council. And he was filled to the Spirit again to preach the gospel with boldness. And so it goes on. See what I mean? It's continuously filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, the one elephant in the room, and not really going to go into this much because it's really about three or four sermons on its own, is, is the thing about tongues. People always want to know, okay, how do I know I'm yielded to the Holy Spirit? Well, you will grow in love. You won't be able to stop it. Two, you will start witnessing. You won't be able to stop that either because it will bubble over. And three, supernatural things will start happening in and through your life. And it may include tongues or it may not. Because the Bible talks about this in four different places, the gifts of the Spirit. And the gifts of the Spirit are interesting. I believe every list or every group of gifts uh, is in a context and they they don't, they're not exactly the same. I mean, you talk about Ephesians, and then you talk about ministry gifts, and it's almost like when God calls you into ministry, He says, I'm now going to grow you up to become this gift, apostle, prophet, etc., evangelist, and so on, teacher. Romans 12 talks about what I call spiritual personality gifts or motivation. It's also called motivational gifts. It's as if God put those things inside of us, and then under the under the um, guidance of the Holy Spirit, these things become supernaturally amplified. And they start working. And nobody has all of those. There's seven of them. And then in 1 Corinthians 12, the Bible talks about what I believe is called manifestation gifts. And all of them, I believe, function like a mailman or a postman. It's a word of knowledge where I receive a letter and the letter is delivered to Sheon. And it's his to open and understand and read, not mine. Unless God gives me a word of interpretation for that as well. You know, there's something, something about that. That's how these work. And tongues is included in that. Now, it's very debatable. Very difficult to understand at times. Let me just say this about tongues. I, quickly, I believe there's three kinds of tongues. There's demonic tongues. There's godly tongues. Uh, usually in evangelical situations. And then I believe there's what I would call today a psychological tongue. Wow, just even talking about this, it's, it's contentious. I know how contentious it is. But I, I just feel prompted a little bit to just mention this. Be aware of the fact that we will have different opinions about this, and it's not ever supposed to be something that divides us. Never. Nobody's going to go to heaven or not because of tongues, with all due respect. <laughs> So demonic tongues, I, I engage with this kind of thing first. When I, I prayed for somebody uh, in a deliverance session, there was clearly, he started speaking in tongues, and it was grating. It was just, I could, it was like it took, took sandpaper on my spirit, and I could just feel, it's terrible. Like, you know, that screeching whiteboard sound when you, 
when you draw a piece of crayon, that was it. So I asked him, where did you get this done? He said, well, I went to the Sangoma, which is the witch doctor in South Africa. And uh, after that, I, I had this thing. And it was clearly demonic. I said, are you willing to renounce this if it is not from God? He said, yes, I am. And so I said, okay, in your own words, just renounce it if it is not from God. If it is from God, we pray that it will stay. But if it's not, and it was gone like that. Demonic tongues. Interesting stuff. Then there's this whole thing of, I mean, when the Bible talks about tongues, it always uses two term, terms, glossolalia and dialectos in, in Greek. They both mean known earthly languages. They never mean anything else. Never. Took me four years to figure this out, by the way. I did a four-year study on tongues to figure it out because at that time, it was so difficult to understand it. Really had to journey around this. So dialectos and glossolalia, what they mean is, uh, uh, let me use an example. I, I did evangelical crusades at one stage with a mentor. A man at that time, he was aged about 60, Denzel Dick in South Africa. Uh, he had a whole tent ministry and, and uh, joined him for a few of those. He once told me a story. He said, I've been trying to learn Zulu for three years so that at these outreaches I could speak in their language to them and with them and, uh, you know, their hearts would open up. So he's been actively trying to learn Zulu. Now, Zulu is an incredibly difficult language. Nyakuluma is a Zulu. It's, a very, it's, it's very picturesque to talk, uh, Zulu. You're, you're talking images. So you have, to, you have to be a native Zulu, really, to almost fully get this. Three years he's studying Zulu, and he struggles. And so in desperation, one, one day he was, he was walking up the stairs to the pulpit to start the message. And in desperation in his head, he's saying, Lord, please help me just to talk a few words properly in Zulu tonight so that I can break their hearts open. And so um, he started speaking, and he spoke Zulu fluently from that moment onwards. Fluently. And so he couldn't believe it. And this is a tongue in that moment that God gave him right there. So the gospel could be preached. There's many such examples. I have many of those stories that I've heard and talked to people about. He never lost it. Afterwards, the Zulus came to him and they said, Where did you learn to speak your Zulu? You speak it like a learned man and the native Zulu. And where did you learn this? He said, I didn't. I tried for three years, but it didn't work. And then there's the thing that I call psychological tongues. So, Shian, come here for a moment, if I may. Shian is a love machine and a hugging machine. So, at, at home, he does this all the time. When Shian was about one year old, you know, I'd often hug him. And, of course, in his young, undeveloped mind at that time, it's now incredibly developed, I have to say. In his young, undeveloped mind, he would say the following. It's a dad, this is a fantastic and wonderful experience can you please continue doing this? I never want you to stop hugging me. But he was only one year old, so he had no words for that. <laughs> but that's what he meant. So what he did say, though, is... Uh, he, he gave groanings. I got it. In a moment of intimacy between me and him, he didn't have the words. Now, you can call that whatever you want to. I believe that's... A lot of what we use as tongues nowadays is exactly that. It's an intimate moment with God. It's just groanings from our spirit to God. For We don't have words for what we really want to say. And, you know, we're just expressing ourselves to God. God gets it. 
God gets it. Thanks, Uti. So I'll say that much about tongues, and if you want to know more, we can talk about it afterwards over coffee. Just be gentle, because remember, this is a tough topic. <laughs> Very happy to discuss it further. And also, let's leave room for different opinions when it comes to tongues. It's one of the most divisive issues in church life, and that is not how it's supposed to be. So I'm happy to just, just address it a little bit, but not go into it too much. Let's finish it off. Talked about that one. We do not need more Holy Spirit. We simply need to yield more to the Holy Spirit. That's a bit different. Now, you may need to hoist the sails. Maybe that requires a prayer where you say, Holy Spirit, I want to become more sensitive to your guidance. I really want to yield to you and to, to what you want to, uh, want to navigate me into, uh, into doing. So, Holy Spirit, yeah, I, I yield. I think it does take that first hoisting of sails. That makes it so much easier. And sometimes we call that the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Sometimes people call it something else, depending on a church denominational wording or whatever you call it. We don't need more Holy Spirit power. We simply need to trim the sails of our lives to catch the empowering winds of the Holy Spirit because it's always there. If we do this, the supernatural will naturally start to happen in and through our lives. And it will surprise us. I tell you, it surprised me. <laughs> now it doesn't anymore. Now I expect it. And I've come to accept it as part of life with God. And I don't ever want to have it anywhere, anywhere else. I'm now addicted. <laughs> thank you, Lord. I just pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for all these things. Incredible, wonderful, <laughs> and I just engagements that you have with us. Holy Spirit, thank you that you are our mentor, our coach, our guide, our navigator. Incredible what happens when we start yielding to you as our coach and guide. Thank you that you don't control in a way that takes away our choice or life or will. It's rather a matter of inviting us, guiding us, Suggesting a better way. Sometimes in a loud voice, sometimes not. It's more like you are shining the light on Jesus and, and constantly telling us that's the example, that's how you should go, this is the way to do this. Sometimes, Lord, you call us to do special things and it's truly supernatural and and we know those things is not possible. They are not possible without you doing it in and through us. If we yield, we become a, a channel of what you want to do. And we want to be there. So Lord, I pray that you would help us with this. Help us first and foremost to understand this and make it part of our own lives. And then help us to trim the sails every day. First hoist them and then trim them. So that we can, we can go where where you empower us to go and do what you want us to do, like Jesus. Amen. As a last invitation, let me say this. Um, ben will be here in front with me and uh, Alf and whoever else wants to. If you, after this morning's sermon, go, man, okay, I'm not so sure that I have hoisted the sails. I'm not sure that the baptism of the Holy Spirit has ever happened in my life. 
Now, I just want to make sure, or yeah, maybe it's clicked for you the first time. I, 